Welcome to the 231st installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Farmer Martin Larson likes to say that just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't there. That's certainly true when it comes to contamination, escaping farm fields, and infiltrating the groundwater that flows through the Swiss cheese-like rock formations that underlie the land in southeastern Minnesota, southwestern Wisconsin, northeastern Iowa, and northwestern Illinois. These limestone formations, which are known as karst geology, are full of sinkholes, cracks, gaps, and various other cavities that allow runoff and whatever else is along for the ride to infiltrate groundwater quickly, sometimes in a matter of minutes. Once a rainstorm washes soil, fertilizer, and manure off the surface, it can be out of sight, out of mind for most people. But for people like Larson, such contamination of groundwater is not hidden. That's because as a caver, he annually spends hundreds of hours underground, exploring the passages groundwater flows through. While he and his companions are crawling around in the dark, their headlamps are illuminating a direct connection between land use practices on the surface and water quality deep underground. Larson has had to navigate through the foam created by liquid manure flowing through underground channels, and he's traversed passageways covered in silt from eroded soil. And he's noticed something else. The volume of water moving down through karst formations is increasing, partly because of climate change, which brings with it more intense rainstorms. That increased volume is also the result of changing farming practices on the surface. There are fewer acres planted to perennial plant systems like hay and pasture, which, with their year-round root systems, can help hold water in the soil profile and slow down infiltration. During a recent field day held by the Land Stewardship Project Soil Builders Network at Niagara Cave in Harmony, Minnesota, Larson gave a presentation that outlined these and other water quality problems he's witnessed firsthand. But he also showed the farmers and other rural residents that were gathered some test results that bear out what he can't see during his caving expeditions. Contamination by chemicals such as nitrogen fertilizer is increasing as more forages are replaced by fields made up of annual crops like corn and soybeans. And those fields are being pounded by ever more intensive rainstorms. It's not all bad news. Besides farming 700 acres of corn and soybeans, Larson also has the perspective of being an employee of the Olmsted County Soil and Water Conservation District, as well as a member of LSP's Soil Health Network. He and other farmers in the region are seeing firsthand that building healthy soil by, among other things, planting cover crops, can increase their field's resiliency by keeping soil in place and managing moisture better. And healthy soil on the surface means cleaner water down below. During the field day in Harmony, local dairy farmer Olaf Haugen described how he's using managed rotational grazing to build soil organic matter profitably and how that's helping him manage water runoff on his own farm, which, by the way, is home to sinkholes. After Larson's and Haugen's presentations, I and dozens of other field day participants got a chance to descend into Niagara Cave, which is managed by Jennifer and Mark Bishop. While we wound our way through narrow passageways, we saw firsthand what Larson was talking about. An underground stream was roaring through parts of the cave, and there was enough water volume to create a 60-foot waterfall. Just 200 feet above us, the land was covered in corn and soybean fields. At some point, water was flowing freely through the rock and streaming down the walls. We were reminded repeatedly by our guides not to drink the water, as sampling has shown that it contains nitrate levels which are above the safe drinking water standard. This is one reason so many communities in karst country have been forced to drill deeper and deeper wells in an attempt to reach uncontaminated water. 
After I and the others emerged from the 48-degree chill of Niagara Cave into a muggy southeastern Minnesota summer evening, I chatted with Martin Larson about how caving has exposed him to the impacts farming can have on groundwater. He also talked about how the soil-building practices he and other farmers are adapting can help keep that mysterious world beneath our feet from becoming a source of contaminated drinking water. Martin started our conversation describing how caving has opened his eyes to an environment that is at once awe-inspiring and fragile. You spend a lot of time underground in this area. Talk a little bit about that. You've really explored a part of the, the world that we, a lot of people, well, most people are not familiar with. Yeah, and that's, that's the thrill of caving. For a caver, it's to find an unexplored new passage that when you are the person that's first entering that passage, your light is the very first light and your eyes is, are the very first eyes to ever see that passage. That's really the thrill for a caver is to, uh, to discover something new. Uh, but then, you know, of all of our existing caves, uh, there's six major caves, 36 miles total in southeast Minnesota and northeast Iowa. You know, you see that interaction of farming with caving. Um, you experience things that, you know, most don't, whether it, you know, it could be, you know, risk. You know, you're exposing yourself to a certain level of risk, doing things that, um, we aren't really as humans meant to do, like being ground, underground for maybe 16 hours, crawling on our stomachs for 12 hours in the, in the water and in the mud, uh, and coming out in the middle of the night at 2, 3 a.m. on a jan- cold January uh, night. It's really an eye-opener to a part of Minnesota that truly very few have seen, and in some cases one or two of us have only seen parts of it. So nowhere else in the state of Minnesota, to my knowledge, can you go where no one else has been, uh, ever. And we can do that right here in Fillmore County or Olmsted County or Winona County. One of the things you pointed out in your presentation, you had a couple slides that were really striking for me, showing some of the things that you have witnessed with water movement, not only the volume of water, but what's the contaminants that are in that water because you're doing the caving. Talk a little bit about some of those examples that you've seen over the years. Yeah, I guess, you know, the most alarming things I've seen is how fast caves can flood. Uh, For example, Holy Grail Cave is a very dynamic cave. It floods often and things change inside of it. But then what comes with that flood, uh, which is topsoil, you know, it's dark. We know it's from agriculture. Uh, and it may not be just topsoil. Typically, with runoff, other things come with, such uh, as manure-contaminated runoff and the foam that we found in the caves, you know, so much so that you have to fight your way through the foam to, to enter the passage. And you're farming, and I know you've been involved with putting on cover crops, and you've, yep. you've worked with farmers who put on cover crops, yep. and that was one of the things you talked about was kind of the good news part of it, that there are ways, I guess, focusing a little bit on the bad news, you were saying, you know, best management practices or BMPs aren't enough, uh, that that's, you, you realize that with as the way water moves in this part of the state, that there's just no way we can, doing the kind of conventional cropping system that we can keep those contaminants out. But the, there is some good news. So specifically with uh, best management practices that are not addressing the pollution problem would be for nitrates. And we know now that even with the rate, right rate, uh, the right amount and the right timing, we're not getting water that's drinkable be, below our, wa- our row crops. My 
research and then my farming methods at home of introducing cover crops and working with others who are doing the same thing, uh, we can find ways either by myself or with others that we can get these cover crops in our row crop rotation and make them work. And, and it doesn't work every time and that's why we have to learn, but farming doesn't work every time. And we've, we've accepted that years ago, we just kind of become accustomed to growing high yields every year and, and we can count on 200 bushel a year, uh, 200 bushel corn a year. But this year we're not, find, we're not gonna find that yeah. because of the amount of rain that we're getting. So we, we need to accept what we, what we can't uh, change, but change what we can. And, and that would be with, with adoption of cover crops that help in many ways with the soil loss and nitrate leaching. Well, that's one of the things you pointed out was that with the best management practices, you're, especially with the caving and some of the sampling that's been done in this part of the state, we're just seeing that the levels are not going down to the levels that we need for drinkable water. We do have to start taking these extra steps to build that soil health, I guess. Yeah, and, and when we, we have seen the nitrate levels rising in shallow aquifers first, and it was the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, that as our methods of agriculture changed on the surface, that we were losing acres of alfalfa and pasture, and more became corn and soybeans where the problem exists, it affected those shallow aquifers first, and now we're seeing it deeper and deeper. And, you know, that's most concerning because there are areas now where it becomes cost prohibitive to drill a well deep enough to get to zero or low nitrate levels. One of the most striking slides you showed was, I don't know where it was, maybe it was in Cold Spring, it showed a well oh, pipe coming down? Yeah, so that well pipe is located in Coldwater Cave, which is in Winnesheet County, yeah. Iowa. I mean, that really strikes at home. There's your drinking water right there. I mean, it, uh, it is. And, and we may think that, you know, we, I use that example because it makes an impact. But if you were to pull up well records from, let's say, the county well index and read boring records, voids are encountered very often in wells in southeast Minnesota. And they're just recorded as a void. What's a, a void? A void would be exactly what we see in that picture, that the, the drill bit, uh, the well drilling uh, rig, breaks through the rock, hits an airspace, and goes back into rock again. That's the void. So it could be a crevice, it could be just a small little fracture, uh, or it could be a cave. So how long have you been caving in this area? I've been caving for five years. Yeah, and you, you said you, what was it, you spent 500 hours uh, underground? Yeah, just when I add up, the uh, trip logs, it's just shy of 500 hours a year, yep. So have you noticed just in that five years a difference in, I guess, both water volume and maybe some of the contaminants that you're seeing down in there? A uh, good example, I, I always come back to it, is Holy Grail because it's, it's, it floods so often, mm -hmm. and it is flooding more often in the last two years than it has uh, since I started caving. And Holy Grail is that example of a cave that expressed itself because of a massive uh, rain event or a high intense rain event. So each time it floods in Holy Grail, it brings in a little more topsoil. And, and we can count that. We can see it in the profile of the soil, how much has come in since the prairie was plowed. So that one is a very good uh, example. In the last uh, month, 
we've gone to Holy Grail twice. I've been in Holy Grail twice the last the last month. And two of those times, both times, we came back to the ladder to hear a thunderstorm. We left the cave, and within hours, the cave was flooded. Trusting the weather forecast. Mm-hmm. So we, we get these weather forecasts that say that we could get a shower. But we go into the cave, and, and like tonight, you can feel the humidity. Mm-hmm. You know that there's a risk of a, of, a, of a high, intense storm now. So when we go into the cave, that plan is already made that we will not venture far enough from the ladder that we can't get back if something were to start to happen inside the cave. Because there are warning signs that a storm is occurring on the surface. Within 20 to 30 minutes, the storm water is already starting to come into the cave through the ceiling, through the joints, through the Mm -hmm. fractures. And we've experienced that first. And then when the runoff enters sinkholes in the pit's with water in them, the water table starts to rise and we see it coming up. You know, those are the indicators that this storm is occurring and filling, you know, a very large cave with a lot of water very quickly. Well, that brings home a really important point in this part of the state is that water is moving from the surface. Is it within a matter of hours? Is that... It it, moves into the car system within a matter of minutes. It can move miles within a matter of hours that we've completed dye traces where we've found dye moving over a mile in a matter of five to six hours. Well, and I just did, went the, on the cave tour here at Niagara, and they were talking about relatively recently there was a situation where hog manure had been applied, and they saw it down in the cave, and it was pretty much in the cave. It smelled like pig manure for three days mm-hmm. and really uh, they had to clean it out and because they were thinking about not being able to do tours anymore yeah. but that it just shows how quickly even yeah. that and can just move we've experienced down. that in other caves you know so much foam that you have to fight your way through it and the foam is from manure contaminated runoff one other chart that you showed that and i'm not sure if i was interpreting this correctly but you were showing uh, nitrate levels and how you know, in a corn year, it can it goes up. It goes up above that uh, uh, EPA drinking water uh, limit. Mm-hmm. But traditionally, we would see it drop below in a soybean year. But if I was looking at that right, it looks like you. It, we've seen some situations where even in a soybean year that it's a little bit higher. Is that right? Typically, even in a soybean year, we are seeing levels above the drinking water standard in many cases. Not all cases. But uh, the probability exists that the uh, nitrate in the water below the rooting zone of soybeans is high enough to meet or exceed the, the threshold at 10 parts per million. So that would have been leftover legacy nitrogen from the year before? Yep, but also, um, you know, we have natural occurring uh, nitrogen, nitrate. And if we don't have the roots to intercept that nitrate before it leaves the soil profile, it will leave the soil profile. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we think of fibrous thick roots, well, prairie grass uh, or lawn even, mm-hmm. is, does a good job of gathering that nitrate before it's lost in the natural system. Crops like alfalfa do a very good job of keeping it out of the water. Yeah. But corn and soybeans lack the, the plant physiology to do that, so they lose it. So it really does just reinforce that idea we need continuous living cover and we need some deep-rooted systems that some of these cover crops provide. The cover crop's job for nitrate is to gather it up when the plant can't and hold it there and then release it Mm -hmm. when the plant can get it. 
So in a systems approach, it's an aid in holding nitrate and nitrogen in the system, in the rooting zone, so that the, 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 the corn plant can use it mm-hmm. at the right time. Are you seeing with some of the farmers you're working with, I know there's been some fits and starts with cover cropping, that type of thing, but are you seeing, I guess, more interest as well as some farmers starting to have some success with it a little bit? Yeah, more interest and, you know, sticking with it for at least three years, the the trials and, and errors, because you're exploring a new way to adopt a new practice into your farm. Mm-hmm. And it's like fishing. If you were given a good fishing hole, would you only give it one day or would you give it more than once? And that's that's kind of the analogy that I would like to use, that stick with it for three years. And I have seen first-year failures that ended up to be second-year successes in an exceeding way mm-hmm. and then uh, adoption on that farm across many of the acres. Yeah. Patience, you know, to be patient with that first and second and third year, maybe. And you're using cover crops on your own. You, you raise corn and beans, corn right? Corn and beans, about 700 acres, and I'm about 50 to 60 percent cover crop. Have you? What results have you seen with that? Reduced erosion. So this year, west of Rochester, we've we've received an exceedingly large amount of rain. And even in the no-till, I wasn't satisfied with the level of erosion until the cover crops were in place and that really was the tipping point it's a it handled these rains as good as we could expect and so I've I've noticed that I've also noticed reduced crusting in the spring so I've noticed that in, in corn and soybean years when we get heavy rain after planting with a period of cool weather and then it warms up and it gets hot and we bake that surface will crust that surface so that the corn and soybeans can't emerge properly. But with that root mass and those cover crops in place, we're less apt to crust that so hard that the plants can't get up. And that that's a real problem with whether you're a no-tiller or a conventional farmer. It happens. But with years of cover cropping and, no, and no-till, we're getting the benefit of the cover crop, but we're also getting the benefit of the healthier soil and likely... Uh, bringing those organic levels up, organic matter levels up, to reduce crusting there also. Yeah. Well, I wonder if one situation we're having is no-till was was a very adequate way to manage that water and manage that erosion until, I guess, these extreme this extreme climate change came mm-hmm. about. It, yes. the, the, it was a great system. It worked at the time, but now with the changing climate, we need, a, a, we need to add something to that to keep it sustainable. And it truly is extreme. It, it truly is when we see uh, just just up the road from me this Monday, a sprayer was stuck so badly that an excavator had to come retrieve it, and the excavator sank to the cab. So a second excavator and a winch dozer had to come out, and, and that's unheard of in my area. Um, you hear about those things happening in peat bogs, but not in the egg fields of Olmstead County. So it, it is real, and it is extreme. Well, is that someone I'm wondering if you're seeing interest on the part of farmers who are conservation-minded. They've always wanted to conserve soil, and so they maybe adopted no-till, but now they're realizing, oh, that's not enough. I need to kind of add this extra system. Yeah, yeah, because in years like what we're having this year, it's not just me that's questioned whether we can keep farming the way we've been farming, mm-hmm. You know, it, whether we can keep farming row crops the way we even with the no-till and the 
cover crops if, if you can't get it planted, if you can't get it sprayed, if you can't work the land. We never thought that it would ever come to that, that we're struggling that much to get our work done. We really have to think differently. Yeah. Just, and, and that's the that's that's our mentality that's, as humans but as the farmers to adapt, to learn the new way to do it that works better. I think we need to get back to the point of, you know, we, we can talk about what happens in the cave, we can talk about what happens in the water, but we have to get back to the accountability to our farms and to our soil and to keeping them in the family mm-hmm. and to keeping them viable. Um, because if we lose our farmable soil, you know, we won't have to worry about marketing grain anymore. We won't have to worry about high yields anymore because we don't have them. I say manage now for conservation. We manage for weeds. We manage for bugs, we manage for diseases, and let's manage, well, when we manage for marketing, grain marketing, and all the others, buying, purchasing, let's not forget conservation, or we won't have to worry about those other things. For information on how to build the kind of healthy soil that keeps our groundwater clean and creates more resilient farms and communities on the surface, see LSP's Soil Builders page at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Morgandale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. (laughs) ¶¶